So this month we are taking another step in our journey and we are thinking specifically about the good journey in other people's shoes. What does it mean for us to be mindful of other folks and their journeys, their specific journeys, and how we might seek to find our own way into their shoes as we seek to understand uh, the plight of the world. So to that end, let us pray. By your grace and through your mercy, we pray, O Lord, that you will allow these words to come to point to the word just read and to the word made flesh in Jesus the Christ. For we pray this in his name. Amen. So I have a confession to make. And the confession I have to make is that when I'm traveling by air, I'm not a very sympathetic person. I don't, I'm not a sympathetic person when I travel anyway, but especially by air. Traveling by air these days is an exercise, as we all know, of running the gauntlet. What suitcases are you taking? Is your carry-on the right size? Do you have your liquids in a see-through package? Do, your, do you have your license and boarding pass available? Do you have your laptop out of your carry-on? Do you have your shoes and belt off? Do you have everything out of your pockets? Are you TSA approved? Are you in zone one, two, three, four, five? You have to fly about 100,000 miles before you know how that system works. And before that, you're bound to make some kind of mistake, which makes people behind you in line grow rather irritated over having to wait around while you fix your mistake. My confession is that I tend to be one of those people behind in the line who get impatient with people who have not figured out the system, who are unsure of how to run this gauntlet, who have not yet traveled 100,000 miles. I easily forget, however, the hundreds of mistakes I've made in learning how to navigate the gauntlet myself, the lives of hundreds I have inconvenienced while messing up at the security checkpoint. Instead, now I just roll my eyes when somebody messes up and doesn't like having have their boarding pass immediately available. That's half of my confession. <laughs> the other half of my confession is the one I feel particularly bad about, is when I get on the airplane and take my seat and notice somebody coming down the aisle with a young child, an infant or a toddler. <laughs> oh boy. This should be interesting, I say to myself. And I brace myself for what seems to inevitably happen, which is at some point during the flight, the child grows uncomfortable enough to start crying. Maybe he's hungry, maybe he needs his diaper changed, maybe his ears hurt from the pressure of the cabin, maybe he's just out of sorts, but he's crying, and maybe it was my hope to sleep on the plane, or to read on the plane, or do some work on the plane, and since I don't have one of those super-duper sets of ear headphones, this crying baby gets me out of sorts. And then this thought passes through my mind. Why can't they do something about that crying baby? Why won't they stop that baby from crying? As if this crying I'm hearing is some sort of conspiracy against me and the rest of the plane. This little seven-month-old human being is out to get me, is out to ruin my trip. When actually all of what is happening is a cry, a simple human cry. A little human being calling out for help. I suppose it could be said that we are generally uncomfortable with the human cry. 
It's just not something that we feel very capable, generally, of handling. How do we deal with the human cry? Not, not just little children, but, but how do we deal with the cry of human beings in general? I'm old enough to remember a presidential candidate, Edmund Muskie, crying during a press conference over the unfounded allegations that had been levied against his wife. And it was the crying that led people to think he was not strong enough to be president. Soon thereafter, Muskie dropped out of the race. There's no crying in baseball, says Tom Hanks' character in a league of their own. But, but maybe there's no crying in most places. Because crying sets us on edge and makes us want to do something to stop it. And even perhaps pushes us away from the very pain producing the cry. A pastor friend of mine used to say that crying babies in church are like New Year's resolutions. All should be carried out, but very few are. <laughs> I understand his point, but nevertheless, I always thought that the presence of a baby, crying or otherwise, meant some hope for the church. Crying might make us uncomfortable because crying speaks of pain. Who wants to get involved with pain? Pain is complicated. Pain is somewhat unmanageable. Pain is not always easy to fix. Pain can be annoying. Easier to ignore it, wish it away, hope that somebody else can make it better. Maybe that's what happened in Jesus' parable, the Good Samaritan, when the first two travelers walked by the man beaten on the side of the road, two holy men, as it turns out, hear the cry, see the pain, but pass by on the other side. Maybe somebody else will be willing to step into the complication and the complexity. Better to walk by the other side, distance yourself from the cry. But the third man, a dreaded Samaritan with no EMT training, no green card from Samaria, hears the human cry and steps not away, but toward. And maybe that's an echo of what we hear early in the Bible when the Israelites, through a tragic historic twist of fate, have ended up under the cruel and oppressive hand of Egypt's pharaoh and for decades, centuries, have been driven to the ground by inhumane treatment. And the Exodus writer says the Israelites groaned. They groaned. They cried out from their pain. And the storyteller says out of the slavery, their cry for help rose up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant, and God looked upon the Israelites, and God took notice of them. God heard their cry. God looked upon them, and God took notice of them. Verses later, God appears to Moses in the burning bush and says, I, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry, and I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them. Such is the movement of God, the Spirit of God, to hear the cry to notice the cry and to approach the cry. 
It is what we celebrated a few weeks ago when the angels announced that to you, shepherds, to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. God's movement is always to hear the cry, notice the cry, and then approach the cry. When Jesus himself meanders up to the regions outside of Israel and is confronted by the pain of a non-Israelite mother whose child is dying, Jesus' first instinct, maybe it's his human instinct, his first instinct is to turn away, to disregard, to say, in essence, you're on your own, lady, not my problem. But then perhaps it's the divine that gets hold of him and he notices the pain and he approaches the pain and he heals the pain. Such is the movement of God to hear the cry, notice the cry and approach the cry. You've heard me tell before the story of the parents waiting outside the preschool for the children on their last day of school before Christmas, and the children come running out, carrying with them the little Christmas surprise upon which they had been working for days to give to their parents. And one boy trying to run and put on his coat and carry his gift at the same time trips and falls, and from his arms flies the surprise which lands on the floor with the obvious ceramic crash. In a second, the boy lets out an inconsolable wail. The father quickly bends over and says to the boy, that's all right, son, it's all right, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. But the mother, much wiser in these things, grabs the boy into her arms and says, oh, but it does matter. It does matter a great deal. And she weeps with her son. The spirit of the divine is always toward the cry toward the pain. Which brings me back to that time when in college I was assigned in one of my classes to read a letter, a letter that had been around for 15 years, but I had never read it, I suppose, because of the insular upbringing of my own. It was a letter written by a clergyman who had been arrested and was in jail. It came to be known as Letter from a Birmingham Jail written by Martin Luther King Jr., who had been arrested for leading a nonviolent civil disobedience campaign in Birmingham for the sake of his people who were victims of racism. He was writing this letter in response to a group of white clergymen who had implored him to quiet the cry of his people, quiet them, and wait for justice to be enacted in the courts. But Martin Luther King Jr. had no interest in quieting this cry. Perhaps it is easy, he wrote in his several page letter, perhaps it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her eyes when she's told that Funtown is closed to colored children, and to see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky and to see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness toward white people. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who's asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? Then you will understand 
why we find it difficult to wait. It's hard to get through King's letter without hearing this cry and without crying yourself. I remember reading that letter for the first time and how when reading it, it brought back this memory of when I was in high school in suburban Detroit and our church youth group had invited another church youth group from Detroit to come up and spend some time with us in the suburbs. Our, our group was all white, their group was all black, and we got this idea during the day to go up and play some softball, mix up the groups onto teams, and play at the local elementary school baseball diamond. And after we started playing and having a good time, a, a group of neighbors gathered at the backstop and demanded we stop playing. Never before had they had any concern about our playing there, but now we were there with our African-American friends, and now they wanted us off the field. We knew why they didn't want us there, by the epithets they were hurling, and we knew it wasn't a good enough reason to leave, so we stayed and continued to play. We stayed and played until they commandeered our baseball bats and began to chase our new friends. Then we left. Martin Luther King's letter reminded me of the tears of my new friends as they fled the field that day, humiliated. The human cry. Back a couple years ago when the issue of Confederate Army monuments was on the front pages of our papers and the source of great tension, I'm, I'm guessing it was that searing childhood memory that compelled me to make my way up to Bradenton and stand on the edges of a rally in front of the courthouse, a couple hundred of our brothers and sisters crying out. I suppose I was there, if for nothing else, than to hear their cry. Notice their cry. Approach their cry. I worry that that sounds like a pat on the back, but the truth is I know that such a little gesture is not even enough. It's not nearly enough. But the journey of a thousand miles always takes a first step, and maybe the first step is to let Jesus challenge us on our instinct to flee the cry to be deaf to the cry, to forget the cry, or just to not bother with the cry, or as I sometimes do on an airplane, let blame somebody else for the cry. But to instead hear Jesus say, hear the cry, notice the cry, approach the cry, bear one another's burdens, Paul says, and thus fulfill the law of Christ, or as Bill Withers would say, lean on me. I know that human civilization and democratic societies are a complex web of needs and demands and justices and injustices, and I'm not here to write the prescription. I don't have all the answers, and every answer brings with it its own vigorous debate. It's hard to read the Bible and not get the point that if we're interested in understanding the will of God, one of the first things to do is to listen for where there's crying. Notice where there's crying. Approach where there's crying. Kumbaya is the old African-American spiritual that we've all learned along the way and that we will sing in a moment. Come by here 
is how it's translated. Come by here is what it asks for. Someone's crying, Lord, kumbaya. Someone's crying, Lord, come by here. And to sing it, I suppose, is to imply that we're close enough to hear it ourselves and wonder what can be done, what justice might we ask of the Lord and of ourselves? What healing can we bring? How might we, like Moses, participate in God's deliverance? The list is endless. The crying mother at the border, the crying teenager struggling with identity and orientation, the crying veteran plagued by PTSD, the crying girl bullied by the mean girls, the crying father just let go from his job, the crying teenager running off a baseball field. And we sing Kumbaya, my Lord, Kumbaya. And the Lord heard the cry of the people and noticed them and grabbed them into her arms and said, oh, but it does matter. It matters a great deal. And she wept with her children. 